while we continue our worship of our resurrected Savior by turning in our Bibles to where we left off on Good Friday in Mark chapter 15. I invite you to join me there. Mark chapter 15, where we will be looking at verses 37 through 39. Mark chapter 15, verses 37 through 39, where we are given a glimpse into the power of Christ's cross and his resounding victory over sin and Satan and death, what we celebrate this morning through his resurrection. It is a victory confirmed through resurrection. That's why we gather this morning. That's why we gather every Sunday to remember this Savior. Let's read the text and in our minds, starting in verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. As we come to this passage, I want you to consider one word. One word, and that is the word access. Specifically, access that the sinner has through saving faith, access that the sinner has been given to God the Father. In Genesis 3, after sin enters the world, you find this frightening phrase. Genesis 3:23, the Lord God sent out, the Lord evicts from the garden Adam and Eve. He severs that face-to-face relationship with his creation because of their sin. So he drove the man out. It's a decisive and definitive exile. He banishes his image bearers. And to emphasize this further, at the east of the garden, God stations the cherubim. These are powerful and frightening angels. They're placed there as supernatural guardians of the Garden of Eden, guarding God's presence, to which God then gives the flaming sword, which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. It's a frightening scene. It is at this point that access to God is denied to humanity. Because of God's great holiness and because of man's great sinfulness. And that theme continues throughout the pages of the Old Testament. But when you come to our passage this morning, specifically verse 38, a dramatic shift takes place. That banishment from the Father is broken and access to the Holy One is reestablished. Access to God purchased by Christ, symbolized by the veil of the temple being torn in two from top to bottom. Here's the restoring, the reconciling work of Christ's cross. When Christ died, something took place within the supernatural realm. It was a transaction made with God for man's sin. So the death that changed how a sinner could approach holy God, not in fear, but now in security, safety. And this restored access to the Father 
is seen in two ways by two miracles that take place the moment Jesus dies. The first miracle is the tearing of the temple veil. The second miracle is the transformation of a sinner's heart in verse 39. Two miracles purchased by Christ through his death. The miracle of tearing, symbolic, that man can once again enjoy God's presence through Christ's sacrifice. And the miracle of transformation, saving faith, repentance given to a Gentile, a Roman soldier of all people, symbolic that sinners now from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, no matter how sinful you might be, that sinners are now allowed access. They can now approach the holy, holy, holy one through faith in Jesus. Let's look at each of these miracles as we celebrate our Savior's cross this morning. Begin with miracle number one, the tearing of the veil. Miracle number one, the tearing of the veil. Start in verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. At this point, Jesus is dead. 33 earthly years have now ended. And all of the prophecies of his coming execution have been fulfilled to the letter The good shepherd has laid down his life. He's endured the physical, emotional, and spiritual pain of the cross. He's exhausted his father's wrath against sin for all who will believe and be saved. In the words of Luke 23, Jesus' final words included, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The torment of experiencing God's wrath is now over. The separation from his father, Jesus endured, has now ended. And according to John, Jesus also cried out, it is finished. All the necessary work of redemption has been offered. Full payment for sin has been received. And it is at this moment, after Jesus breathes his last, that a series of supernatural events take place. They're all mightily symbolic of what just happened on the cross. Matthew records that the earth shook and the rocks were split. This seems to be the punctuating of God's wrath. Perhaps this was God's anger at the fact that sin had cost his son so much. Matthew also adds that tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Here's supernatural proof that through Christ's death, Christ had actually conquered death. And not only conquered death for himself, that's what we celebrate this morning, but he also conquered death for all his saints. This is a mini preview of the coming resurrection of the righteous. A mini preview of our future hope when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. But the miracle we're focusing on here is the tearing of the veil. And you might say, well, that's not as dramatic as an earthquake and the resurrection of the dead. But as you will see, this is by far the most significant of all the crucifixion miracles that take place. 
Verse 38 describes the scene. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The way Mark describes this shows this is nothing less than a supernatural miracle. The verb torn here is in the passive voice. So it's called a divine passive. God is the actor. God is doing the tearing. The direction of the tear also points to God at work from top to bottom. Heaven tears this veil. And Mark uses the aorist tense. This is a decisive splitting. You can almost hear the tearing. Now think of the temple for a moment to grasp not only the scene, but also the significance here. Within the temple complex, there were three main divisions. First, there was the outer court. This is known as the court of the Gentiles. This was as far as the Gentiles could go within this temple complex. Inside this outer court, slightly higher, was the inner court, which included the court of women, the court of Israel, where only male Jews could enter, and then the court of the priests, where only the priests were given access. But there was also a third division within this complex that's the most sacred division. It's a two-story temple in the shape of a T. And within this building was the holy place and then the holy of holies. Now in the court of the priests, there was an altar, roughly 45 feet square, 15 feet high. There was a drainage canal that drained the sacrificed animal's blood into the Kidron Valley. To the north of the altar was a tethering place where the sacrificed animal would be slaughtered and then skinned before being placed on the altar to burn. And to the south of the altar, there was a laver used for the priest's washing. The symbolism of the priest's court was clear. In order to draw near to God, in order to enter the holy place, there needed to be a sacrifice, hence the altar. And there needed to be a washing, that's the laver. All symbolic, symbolic of the filthiness of man and the holiness of God when it comes to sin. Now, when a priest entered the holy place, there would be a table of showbread, golden candlesticks, and a golden altar of incense, symbols of union and fellowship with God. And then from there, within this temple building, hung a veil, a curtain. It stretched from floor to ceiling, 90 feet high, guarding the entrance into the holy of holies. Why the curtain? Why the symbolism? Because the Holy of Holies was the inner sanctum of this temple. And the high priest could only enter once per year on the Day of Atonement. And only then bringing blood with him, the blood of a sacrifice, a constant reminder that sin renders humanity unfit for the presence of God, that access has been barred from the creator to his creation. It's a reminder that the dwelling place of God is inaccessible to sinful human beings. In the Holy of Holies, 
that inner sanctum, there was no furniture, no place for the priest to sit, symbolic that the priest's job was never complete, that the sin offerings of bulls and goats were never sufficient to pay for sin. Sacrifices had to continually be made every year. In the Old Testament, within the Holy of Holies, there was an ark, an ark of the covenant. Ark means box. It was a wooden box overlaid in gold. It symbolized God's presence. Inside the ark was the covenant of Moses, the ark of the covenant. It's the law of God, a reminder of God's impeachable holiness, but also a reminder of man's sinfulness. And then on the box was a golden cover. It's called the mercy seat. The place where appeasement of God's wrath against sin took place. It was a rectangular slab of solid gold with two cherubim attached to it. And the wings of the cherubim stretched across the box. They're guarding the presence of God. That's Genesis 3. It's a reminder of the guardian angels. Every aspect of inside the temple emphasized God's separateness, his perfect righteousness, his unapproachableness. The scene within the Holy of Holies was awesome and it was frightening and it was designed to be. It would be upon the mercy seat that the high priest once a year would sprinkle the blood of a sacrificed goat, symbolic of a sin offering on behalf of the people of Israel. He would first remove his official priestly garments. Those garments signified beauty and glory. He would then clothe himself in white linen, symbolic of repentance. He would then offer a bull calf as a sin offering for the priests as a group and then for himself individually. With that done, he would then enter the Holy of Holies with a censer of live coals from the altar of incense. He would fill the room with smoke, again, symbolic of the need to hide himself from the presence of God. He would then sprinkle the bull's blood on the mercy seat and then in front of the mercy seat, in front of the Ark of the Covenant. These were detailed instructions given by God. This is meant to be graphic imagery, symbolic, to impress on the minds of Israel that sin demands payment. Sin demands sacrifice. Sin demands blood and death. Symbolic that man has violated God's covenant, his holy law. That because of our sin, the privilege of being in God's presence has been forfeited. Thus atonement, a payment price needed to be made in order for God to remain with them. Now the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, again, a massive curtain, 90 feet high, 30 feet wide, it hung by hooks of gold from four pillars. 
It was made of blue and scarlet and woven within it were cherubim. This brings us back to Genesis 3. It's all symbolism. Woven within it were the very creatures that symbolize banishment. They were the protectors of God's holiness. Every time a priest would see this veil, it was a solemn warning this far and no farther. That had been the message. That had been the picture ever since the fall in Genesis 3. Every time the tabernacle was constructed, it was a reminder of God's holiness. Every time someone visited the temple, they were reminded that direct access to God had been severed because of sin. Yet now in verse 38, at the moment of Jesus' death, that veil of distance, that veil of separateness, the veil where angelic guardians and protectors were woven in as a warning, that veil now hangs in two pieces, torn. You can imagine the priests, they're able to see into the holy of holies. The verb torn here. It's the word schizo. You can hear our English word schism in it. It's a strong word. It emphasizes division. It's ironic here because this veil divided men from God, but now God tears it in half. The word torn is extremely significant. In fact, you can outline Jesus's ministry with this one word. You can outline Jesus's ministry. In Mark's gospel, this word torn is used two times. Two times, once at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and once here at the end of his ministry. The first time Mark uses this word is in chapter one, verse 10, when the heavens are open, when the heavens are torn asunder. They're torn open. It's the time when Christ was anointed by the Spirit for his messianic ministry. It's at his baptism just like in Mark 15, the verb is in the passive voice. God is doing the tearing. God is sending his spirit. God is sending his son. Again, it's symbolic. God in Christ has now come to man. That's the significance of that tearing. God has come to man. But now as Christ's ministry concludes... The same word is used. The veil of the temple is now torn asunder, torn in two, not symbolizing God coming to man, but now symbolizing that man is allowed access to God. But connected to the death of Jesus, access to God only because of the sacrifice of Christ. The tearing of the veil shows that Christ's sacrifice had been accepted by the Father The old covenant is now done. The ministry of the temple is now finished. There's a new covenant, a better covenant, a covenant of full forgiveness of sin. No more sacrifices needed. The covenant of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That covenant has now been established. That promise has now been given. Access to God has been granted Full and final sacrifice has been offered and now full and final reconciliation can be experienced. First Peter 3 puts it this way. 
For Christ died for sins once for all. That mercy seat is now covered with Christ's blood, his death, his sacrifice. The just for the unjust, the perfect Jesus in the place of the sinner. So that he might bring us to God, reconcile us, grant us access, access that had been lost. is the miracle of reconciliation. The promise that the sinner can be at one with holy God, no longer banished from his presence. This is the hope of Christ's gospel. There is now free and direct access to the throne of grace. And it's access without ritual, access without sacrifice on our end, without ceremony. We're granted this access when we pass through Jesus in faith and repentance. Hebrews 10 draws on this imagery. You'll see it. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil. What is that veil? What is that access? Through the veil, that is his flesh, his death, his sacrifice. This is why this tearing is greater than the earthquake. This is why the Father rips the Holy of Holies veil in two. Is because through Christ's death and because of his resurrection, access to God has been restored, access has been given. leads into a second miracle. Miracle described in verse 39. Miracle number two, the transformation of a heart. And these two miracles go together. The transformation of a heart from the tearing of a veil, symbolic of reconciliation of God being purchased. We now see the transformation of a heart where God now gives a new heart. He gives spiritual life to a hardened sinner This is now a picture of the faith required to enjoy God's restored presence. Look at verse 39. When the centurion, and you need to stop there, when the centurion, a Gentile now comes into focus. Not just any Gentile, a soldier, a centurion. Not just any centurion, this would have been the Roman soldier overseeing Jesus' entire crucifixion. It's possible that this centurion was even one of the soldiers who came to arrest Jesus Thursday night, Friday morning, in the Garden of Gethsemane. This would have been the man in charge of every part of Jesus' mockery and pain in verses 22 through 36. Up down to verse 18, this would have been one of the soldiers who commanded the tying of Jesus to the post for scourging, the dressing up of Jesus as a comic king, the taunting of Jesus ordering the Roman soldiers, verse 18, to say, hail, king of the Jews. And then verse 19, to kneel in mocking allegiance before him and then batter his head with a reed and spit in his face in disgust. That's the centurion. 
This would have been the centurion who led Jesus from the praetorium to Golgotha. This is one of the soldiers who tried to give Jesus wine mixed with myrrh. It's in verse 23. Wants to give him wine to prolong his agony on the cross. This man was there when Jesus was stripped naked. He is a soldier who led the raffling of Jesus' clothes while Jesus hung above him in shame. The centurion was a hardened sinner. He boasted allegiance to Caesar. Caesar was the son of God. The centurion was a Christ hater. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he had been blinded by the God of this world to see the glory of Jesus. But all of a sudden, in the white space, between verses 38 and 39, a supernatural miracle takes place in the invisible realm. And this man's hardened heart is replaced with a heart that loves Jesus. Continue verse 39. When the centurion who is standing right in front of him saw the way Jesus breathed his last, Matthew adds that the centurion saw the earthquake and the things that were happening and thus became very frightened. This soldier knows something supernatural is taking place. He knows Jesus' death is no ordinary death. He's the soldier in charge, but now he's fearful. And fearful of who? Fearful of a dead man. And as verse 39 begins, everything that he had seen and everything that he had heard over the, these last few hours finally makes sense. He remembered that the guards fell before Jesus' majesty in the garden when Jesus says, I am. He remembers that Jesus offered no resistance to his arrest. He remembers how Jesus did not retaliate when mocked in the praetorium. He remembers Pilate's proclamations of Jesus' innocence. He saw the darkness of God's judgment that engulfed the land. He felt the earthquake shake the ground under his feet. He recalls Jesus' words from the cross, he heard Jesus' selfless prayer, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. He heard his promise to the dying thief, today you will be with me in paradise. He hears Jesus' caring words for his mother. He hears Jesus' cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he hears that final cry, it is finished. And this soldier in charge is frightened by the implications of all of this. The centurion had overseen many crucifixions. He knows how someone should die on the cross. Normally crucified victims would suffer extreme exhaustion over a period of two to three days. People didn't die of crucifixion. They died of suffocation. They're not able to prop themselves up to breathe. But not Jesus. Go back to verse 37. Jesus shouts. 
Jesus uttered a loud cry. That is not natural. And so, verse 39, when the centurion saw the way he breathed his last, everything he had experienced over these last few hours, all of it comes together and he makes a confession of faith. Verse 39, truly, there is no doubt, truly, this was the Son of God. This is how Mark's gospel began. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now this is how Mark's gospel ends. Truly, this man was the Son of God. It's a confession of faith, and it is a divine miracle, a divine miracle. This is the confession of faith that is only possible when the Spirit of God does a supernatural work of regeneration within your heart. When he takes out your hard heart, gives you a new soft heart. 1 Corinthians 12, no one can say Jesus is Lord. No one. It's impossible unless spirit works, except by the Holy Spirit. And that's what the Spirit has done here. He removed the blindness of this man. He gave him eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. He gave him a new heart. He gave him a heart filled with saving faith. Soldier believes who Jesus claimed to be. He called God Father, claimed to be the Son even on the cross. Soldier believes that. Centurion is given a heart filled with repentance from sin. Soldier's idolatrous allegiance to Caesar is now replaced with an allegiance to Jesus. And through this confession, at this moment, this soldier is given eternal life. That's the promise of the gospel. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and all the implications of that, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, through that believing, you are given life, life eternal, a reconciled life in Christ's name. Notice the centurion's confession. He calls Jesus the son of God. That is to say, he attributes to Jesus the same nature as God. He affirms Jesus' equality with God, God in human flesh. Luke adds, the centurion also said, certainly this was a righteous man confesses Jesus' sinlessness, his innocence, his righteousness. What a change. Again, back to verse 18, from those mocking words, hail, king of the Jews, to now his confession of Christ's deity and majesty and perfection. That's the miracle of regeneration. And at this point, At this point, Psalm 22 is being fulfilled. We know the beginning of Psalm 22. It's what Jesus cries out on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's verse one. 
But at this point, upon Jesus' death, verse 27 is now starting to be fulfilled. Verse 27, all the families of the nations, here a Gentile soldier, all the families of the nations will bow down before the Lord. That's what the soldier does. And it is this centurion's confession of faith that confirms exactly what took place in the Holy of Holies just moments before. The two miracles are united. Here is confirmation that access to the Father has indeed been granted. And a former Christ hater, a Gentile, hard-hearted sinner is now allowed access, entrance into God's throne of grace, but only through faith in Jesus. This is the message of Easter. Access to God through Christ is open to all who confess the glory of Jesus. It's open to all who will bow their heart to Christ as Lord, regardless of your race and regardless of your nationality. In fact, regardless of the heinousness of your sin, you can be reconciled to God. You can be forgiven, but only through faith in Christ. Access restored. So what do we learn from the miracles here on the cross? How do we sum all of this up? What lessons do we learn on this Easter Sunday? Let me give you four of them. The first is this, sin demands punishment and holy God demands payment. Sin demands punishment, holy God demands payment. Number two, the wages of sin are severe. Say it again, the wages of sin are severe. Number three, the holy and just, God is loving and reconciling. And in grace and in mercy, he sent his own son to be the sinner's substitute. Let me add here, Christ is also the loving savior who came willingly to die in the sinner's stead. God is just, he is righteous, he is loving, and he is reconciling. Which leads to number four. Access to the Father is now open. Access to the Father is now open, but it is only for those who come to God through the veil of Christ. It's only for those who confess Jesus to be the Son of God and all those implications. Confess Jesus to be master and Lord, bowing down to him in allegiance and trusting the entirety of your eternity in his words, it is finished. Resting and believing that no more payment for sin is needed. No more sacrifices need to be offered, believing that Jesus' death is the full and final payment for sin for all who come to him in saving faith. And if you believe that, you are granted life eternal, the reconciled life. 
This is the salvation we celebrate this morning, confirmed because Jesus rose again from the dead. So I must ask you this question. Have you made this confession of faith? Have you made this confession of faith? Have you turned from your sin and turned from your allegiance to anything or anyone else? Have you turned from your sin to come to the glorious Son of God? Have you through faith and through repentance been granted access to the Father? If not, confess Christ's glory today. Confess your need for a sacrifice now and rest fully and only on Christ's perfect life lived for you. And a substitutionary death offered for you. His glorious resurrection confirming his victory over sin, Satan, and death, confirming that the Father has accepted his sacrifice. Because if you confess that and believe that, the Bible makes this promise, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the promise. Saved from sin, saved unto God. And if you have confessed Jesus in truth, if you have been granted access to the Father, then we can echo Paul's praise in 2 Corinthians 9. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, filled with thanksgiving and praise. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, the gift of reconciliation, access to the Father, the tearing of the veil, and the gift of regeneration, the giving of a new heart and new eyes to see the glory of Christ in truth. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Father, we see your work done in such a mighty way in this passage. We see, Father, a hardened sinner coming to faith and Lord, that is my prayer this morning. That if there is one who hears this, was never turned to Christ in faith and repentance, oh, may your spirit do the work of regeneration now and change that heart and grant them the faith and repentance necessary that they would come through the veil of Christ's cross to you. Lord, for us, may we be humbled in thanksgiving and raised in praise. This is not only your gospel, but this is our gospel. The gospel that we experience because you have given us that access that we needed but could not provide for ourselves. Praise be unto you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.